Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. And Aaron, say hi. Hello there. Hello. <laughs> right. Well, coming up this week, we've got uh, back to school stuff before it's even the end of school in the uh, here in the UK. Uh, we've got a snake that has been in a place for a long time uh, and not doing much. Uh, <laughs> but then we've got a really sad bird story that I'm going to be telling you all about. And then we're going to uh, talk what's black and white, really. So um, let's jump on into the news, unless you two have got anything else to say. Uh, yeah, this is the way. Other than that, let's jump into the news. It's the news! Right, well, we're into the news, and Aaron's going to start us off this week with something that described by himself is no news news. So uh, take it away, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, this this isn't news news <laughs> as such. In the uh, news segment. It's, good, good stuff. It's in the news in a lot of news sources, and it's doing the news rounds. Yeah. It's not really news news. It's not really new news well, either. It's, my it's my article, when we get to it, is actually... If- yeah. A few weeks old as well. So uh <laughs> this is actually even older than a few weeks. Have we all forgotten what is meant to be in the news section? News. No, no, people. no. No, news. no, no. We we Aaron, Aaron and me have just derailed it, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> We're breaking tradition. This is now no longer the news section. This is the old section. Well, yeah, um, like yeah. Middle-aged section. <laughs> the middle-aged section. What I think's happened, if I if I can just kind of go off on this a little bit. What I think's happened is that they were supposed to be reporting on maybe the updated findings of an ongoing study of a population of snakes. And what they did instead was start reporting it as a news thing that these snakes are there and then realize halfway through that they'd botched their job and then gone, screw it, we're going to publish it anyway. Because <laughs> that's what it feels like reading this. But even so, yeah, it's, it's not new news. It's old news that's continuing. The continuing saga of snakes in the UK. It's more of an update of a situation that we have known about for quite some time. It's old news, sir, but it checks out. Uh, You're really <laughs> selling it. We haven't even we've been, that I know. We've, that We have even... You what? I understood that reference. I thought we were doing memes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, we've even actually commented on on this uh, subject in passing on this very podcast. And this is the news that a fourth species of snake that is technically in a very roundabout and distant kind of way, native to the UK, albeit not where it is currently being monitored and nor where it is currently thriving in, in an environment that is, A, not used at all by the other three British snake species, and B, far further north in Britain than the fossil record suggests it historically existed in the first place. So the news, the headline is uh, rat eating snakes in Wales after 10,000 years out of UK. Because they were, they were banished for some sort of heinous crime. 
I'm sure. Um, but the news comes to us from BBC, who suggests that the Esculapian snake is currently being monitored in Mokdre. Is, it, is that how I pronounce it, Gareth? Mokdre, yeah. Mokdre. You know, do you know what it means? I don't. Please enlighten me. It means pig town. Oh, okay. I'm about- assuming at some point there was some sort of pig market or something down in that part near Colwyn Bay. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's Mokdre in Conwy County. Uh, now, it's a little test for you guys. If you paid attention last week, you'll have heard this species mentioned in relation to the Pop Culture Corner that we did, yeah. if you didn't fall asleep through it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, like I say, just a quick test to see what you remember, guys. So, first question then, guys. So, who is this snake named after? So, Gareth... Oh, did, you want the, said, did you want the god's name? Oh, I'm sorry. Gareth, and, uh, Gareth actually got that right albeit spelt wrong. Uh, it is Asclepius. It's the name of the god that this snake is named after. Hard Drew one put spell, down... to be honest. Sorry? It's, it's a hard, hard one to spell. Yeah, it is a hard one to spell. Drew put down a Greek or Egyptian god. So Gareth takes the point in that time. Uh, so next question, guys. Uh, to which pantheon does he belong? Okay, and the guys have said, uh, both have said Greece, a Greek pantheon. So there's a point each. So Gareth's leading the way. 2-1. Okay, and how is this snake represented in Asclepius' symbol? I, you knew gonna, I knew you were going to ask that because I've was, already started yeah. drawing it. <laughs> like, I, I think you can draw it or you can describe it. It's up to you. So Gareth has written and Drew has drawn a snake wrapped around a staff, which is quite correct. So it's 3-2 it's at the moment to Gareth. Uh, and name a common place where you'll find his symbol. I'm just, I'm just going to say mine. I, I, I don't think there's going to be much difference in what me and Drew are going to say. A hospital. Back of a wambulance. A, a wambulance. <laughs> yeah, both very much correct. Hospital and ambulance. So we're on 4-3. Uh, yeah. Uh, and now two bonus questions, because we didn't speak anything about this in last week's episode. It's just to, just to test you a little bit further. Yep. What was Asclepius the god of? Ah... Okay, so Drew uh, doesn't get any points because he said medicine, snakes, and orgies. Yeah, uh, Gareth actually gets two out of the five points because he oh, said yeah. <laughs> he he said healing and what was the other one? Rebirth. rebirth. Healing and rebirth. Asclepius I, is the god of healing. I don't get a, I don't get a point for medicine. Mm, okay, I'll give you a point for medicine. Uh, two points for healing to Gareth. I will argue these points. Two points to Gareth Dorr. <laughs> <laughs> and then last question, who was his father? Oh. I'll give you a clue. You know what? Nine times out of ten, it, it wasn't Darth Vader. Greeks, it's going to be bloody Zeus, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, it's likely to be Zeus, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say it now. I'm just going to say Zeus. Okay. All right. I'll go with someone different then, just so... Uh... It's always blooming Zeus. He's sleeping with everyone. He's pretending to be a swan or a cow. <laughs> or a fridge. I'm sure that's one of them. He pretends to be a fridge. I'm, I'm sure in one of the modern retellings, yeah. when he's trying to f- flirt with a... F- I'm not going to say that. Don't worry. Kronos, <laughs> <laughs> the titan bugger. <laughs> okay. So Gareth is saying Zeus, Drew is saying Zeus's father, Kronos. 
you're not that far off actually that would be the grandfather and great-grandfather respectively because Asclepius's father is Apollo god of the sun god who doesn't do much in Devon (laughs) moving on you uh, have no power here you have no power here Apollo sun god (laughs) I withdraw you like I draw rain from a cloud uh anyway a study undertaken by Tom Major, a PhD student of Bangor University, found that there is a population of roughly 200 individuals of this snake species. 150 of them are juveniles, and some of these are inevitably destined to become a meal for a bird of prey or one of Britain's smaller carnivores. But they are currently living on the northern slopes of the region, going about the business of rat consumption in overgrown gardens and abandoned buildings. And they're pretty much, with regards to their other serpentine relatives, without competition. There are grass snakes in and around that area of Mokdrum. There is, but I think the important thing, if, if I've interpreted this right, is that they don't use the northern side of the slopes. Apparently, they have not moved out the area, as the study could not find any on the far side of the A55 road. Um, So the snakes are believed to be descendants of imported specimens that were housed at the Welsh Mountain Zoo, uh, also in Cullen Bay, in the 60s, specimens that are said to have escaped into the wider zoo grounds. They survive our rougher months by hibernating from October until April, and so long as they can find shelter to do this, they can pretty much thrive in the environment. As I mentioned, the species is technically native to the UK, albeit historically. The fossil record has evidence of a population in the southeast of England. I believe the specimen was found in Kent. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. 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 And that was some 10,000 years ago. Uh, But as far as we are aware, they never existed in Wales. They didn't even go more northern than in that area as far as we're aware at the moment now as, as far as i know the the particular fossils of the the escalopians that they found they're on the sort of mud floodplain regions of what was that sort of ancient thames mm-hmm. uh, this yeah the same thames that it is but this is when you had uh barbary macaques walking around as well so uh, it gives you an idea of the temperature difference that Britain yeah, had well, at that point I'd rather have the snakes here than the monkeys. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's pretty much where we're at with this. Um, the study is currently monitoring them using radio trackers applied via minor surgical procedure, and they track them daily uh, to figure out their movements, their habits, and, and life biology and, and such. But it, like I say, it's 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 not news. I decided to share it anyway, just because we have to admit, guys, we have habit of bringing bad news because that's what the world offers us (laughs) sometimes it's good to stretch if you find some good news and i thought that it was good news that good news that these snakes are thriving good news that they are controlling rat populations uh, pest control very important environmental role and good news that they that they are technically in a roundabout way native to the uk albeit a uk that would have been sorry britain uh, that would have been very different to the Britain that we know. Well, by so, that logic, we need to start releasing Barbary macaques. Uh, no, but if there's any, <laughs> if there's any, like, I, I mean, I, f- I think by celebrating this, maybe we can get some, maybe some lynx, maybe yeah, some bear. Why not? Maybe some wolves. <laughs> some lions. Would you like my uh, <laughs> my inside baseball on this particular topic? Yes, please. Yeah. 
that your new well, favorite phrase now? It, you know, I heard it twice this week. Why not? I thought oh, really? it. <laughs> it's it a phrase that I always use, but like, I, I it should be inside cricket here, but yeah, inside crap. cricket, cricket's better. Well, baseball's better. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, so inside rounders. For those of you, for those of you who don't know, which I think should be everyone, because uh, I don't think I've mentioned it previously on here. I used to work at Welsh Mountain Zoo years ago, and those snakes were there. They've always been there uh, since, like Aaron said, the '60s. Apparently, the the story goes, and you know what it's, you know what these sort of stories are like. The original snake that escaped was a gravid female and managed to live inside of the exterior wall of the reptile house and then into what is now or what was when i was there i haven't been there in a, in a few years now the alligator house mm. um, because both buildings were quite warm and then in the summer disappeared off into the woods the whole zoo is surrounded by pine forest um, even though it's called a mountain zoo which believe it or not you, you get people arguing with you well it's not a mountain it is on a big old steep hill it's- though it's a hill. It's a hill, but people get really picky with you and go, well, you can't call it a mountain. It's only on a hill. It's, it's, a, it's false advertisement. <laughs> when does a hill become a mountain? As Mountains, Gandalf. Mountains. As all three of us will know, if the public finds something to complain about, it's the elevation or the slope of where they're trying yeah, to go with yeah. it. Whether it's not steep enough or whether it's too steep. So you can't win. Um, so essentially these snakes have always been in and around the zoo and down at one end of the zoo, there's a big compost heap where all the, um, you know, the, the hay and the straw and everything is, is mm. got rid of and composted down. And because it's been in this same area for years, that's where all the baby snakes hatch out of, uh, in the spring. Yeah. Uh, because they, they, well, it's the perfect place for them to incubate. It's nice and warm. It's protected. And then they hatch out and there's lots of things for them to eat. And those snakes turn up every now and again in someone's garden, you know, that borders the zoo. And you, you'd end up getting a call to go and, you know, rescue a snake from someone's house or something like that. But um, they are lovely, really, really like beautifully olive green snakes. Mm-hmm. They've they got are. a real aggressive attitude to them to an extent, but it's all show. They are you know, the sort of show-off uh, species that, that makes themselves sound, sound bigger and tougher than they are, but they really aren't. Um, you, you would very rarely even see them in the zoo. Mm. Uh, middle of summer, you might see one sort of... If, you, if you're going to the Welsh Mountain Zoo this year, and I highly recommend going there, if you are walking past one of the sort of exposed hillside bits next to where their new snow leopard enclosure is, you might see one snow, uh, sunning itself on uh, sort of the, the rocky outcrops that are around that way. We certainly used to see them there all the time. Uh, and down in the woods as well is, is the best place to see them. And they're quite good at climbing. They, uh, they seem to go up into the trees. There is a thought as well that they do predate on baby birds. So they're not all good in a sort mm. of a coexisting with native species sort of sense. But that's you know, they never seem to have made a difference to the populations of birds in that area either. But yeah, they've been studying them for, for years there. In fact, I ended up catching a few of them to appear on... S4C, which is the Welsh TV channel, for Yolo Williams, who's a, a wildlife presenter, hmm. um, when they were doing a piece about them. So that was, that was there's my little name drop when I got to meet Yolo Williams. It is a species that I'd like to see up there, just to be able to spot them in the wild. I believe if you're very lucky on a, on a summer's day with the heat 
like bearing down, you might find them um, find them out on rock walls or on uh, hay bales sunning themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, for those of you down in the south uh, of England, they're around London Zoo as well because the same similar thing happened there. Is they were <laughs> kept at London Zoo and escaped as well. Um, Shouldn't they re- rename these snakes from Escalapian snakes to Escapian snakes? Well, that was always the joke. Is they, yeah, they are escaping snakes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, around the sort of small river that is at the back of the Thames, apparently along there there is um, a small population. But just like the ones around the Welsh Mountain Zoo, they've not moved in all of the time they've been there. Mm. Plenty of rats in London. Well, yeah, indeed. Right, well, let's go from me interrupting your news article there at the end to uh, Drew. I'll see if I can interrupt your news article as well, shall I? (laughs) Just as a a little footnote to end my article on, I've just realised, to my great shame, uh, and I may have to send myself into exile over this heinous crime and mistake, that Isculapius and therefore Esculapian, are the Roman names for that god. Ah, uh-oh. The uh-oh. bastardized oh, Roman names wow. for that god. The Greek what? god is correctly named Asclepius, and so I will henceforth make sure that I write my past sins and uh, refer resign. to him as a snake like that. Resign as yeah. our Greek. Uh, god, guru. god guru. I am officially resigning as the mythology oh, maestro. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, Gareth, I remember Ali, Gareth resigned yeah. in the quiz for um, uh, not guessing, I think it was the rhinoceros beetle. Probably, yeah. I think yeah, that went correct. over your head. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of resignations on this podcast, yeah. I feel. I'll have it on your desk when, when you've got a desk. I can only apologise <laughs> to everyone, really, the world over, apart yeah. from the bastard Romans. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what have they ever, what have done, they ever for done for us? Yeah, they've they've well, they've given Greek gods ridiculously stupid names. That's what they've done. But that, that's <laughs> that's not much of a change from the Greek version of that no, one. I mean, it's it's the not first, it's the, not as the heinous first as changing are... Zeus to Jupiter. Well, well, well. There we go. There we go. I think we can forgive you. There we go. There is no pop culture this week, by the way, everyone. You might be no. mistaken. <laughs> well, um, moving moving on from Aaron's resignation. Drew, what have you got for us? Well, I saw a few articles recently that I, I did want to cover. One was called Tory Council Leader Tucks Into Cherry Bakewell Buffet at Food Bank, which I don't know where to start with. It's, no, it's not really our remit. That. It's I not mean, really our remit, no. Like to join you on that. No, and there was another one that said uh, Margaret Thatcher's statue is pelted with eggs hours after it's unveiled. What a waste of eggs. I like, I like how that, was, uh, that came up. Pretty much after last week, I mentioned a statue of that horrid crusty bent um, last week, but um, couldn't cover those articles because they're, they're not really our remit. They're not they're not natural history. So uh, instead, I've gone we'll with another article. You, we'll have Sorry, to get you your own political commentary podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll call it Drew's Rants. Yeah, I don't know who would listen to that. <laughs> so anyway, so I, yeah, I've gone with another article I found uh, that, as I mentioned, is a couple of weeks old. So bite me, but it's uh, it's about something very good. So this is from The Conversation. That's the website I got this article from. And it's titled, How a New GCSE in Natural History Can Help Us Towards a Greener Future. Uh, the first thing I have to say about this is about time. Because mm. 
school age Drew is crying right now listening to this because a, a natural history GCSE is what he always wanted, but I guess it's better late than never. Yeah, same here. Same, yeah. Um, so the article starts by saying the UK's education secretary, Nadim Zahawi, has announced the launch of a GCSE in natural history, a key part of helping bring back the study of plants and animals into the lives of young people. Uh, I'll just quickly mention that he is, of course, a Tory MP. So he does, he does seem to be one of the more sane ones of them, which doesn't really say much. I know. No, I mean, you know, even awful people get things right occasionally. Uh, but Broken clocks and all that. Indeed. Uh, so continuing, the world is facing both a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis each resulting from the damaging effects of our species on the natural world. The UK is among the most nature-depleted countries on Earth. Even its national parks are mostly farmland. Despite this, a psychological phenomenon known as shifting baseline syndrome means that limited personal experience of change, particularly as people grow up, results in a lack of awareness of the sheer volume and diversity of animals and plants that have been lost in recent generations. Yes, exactly this. It's also really nice actually to read an article that's written really well, um, as this one was. <laughs> Uh, so the article then references the fact that 83% of people in the UK live in urban areas and young people growing up in towns and cities have less exposure to nature and experience fewer opportunities to roam in green space than previous generations. This disconnection and isolation from nature is associated with a range of mental and physical health issues. And it's happening just as the world needs people with the ecological literacy to enable them to address the environmental challenges of what's to come. This new GCSE in natural history uh, is an opportunity to put this right. So the examination board consultation that informed thinking about the qualification showed that 91% of responders agreed that we should have a GCSE with the purpose of helping children gain deeper insights into the flora, the flora and fauna of life on earth and how biodiversity affects us and how we affect it. And I believe the remaining 9% of board members who did not agree need not to be board members anymore because why would you disagree with that? Uh, also, 94% of young people surveyed said they would like to study a qualification like this, which is uh, really encouraging. Again, there's a, a 6% there that didn't, and um, those kids are a lost cause. The UK government... <laughs> is there such thing as a lost cause? <laughs> there is here. I'm dealing with right absolutely right. Um, <laughs> the, UK, the UK government strategy for, for sustainability and climate change advocates four strategic aims focus first on education itself and then how education can help deliver our need to meet net zero carbon to be resilient to climate change and to improve biodiversity and environmental quality education is a starting point for sustained uh, change and adaptation not only to encourage societal change but also as we build the skills base for a green economy this will be supported by two key initiatives, the National Education Nature Park and Climate Leaders Award. The former aims to greatly increase biodiversity on nursery school, at nursery school and college grounds, while the latter seeks to recognise and support the tremendous efforts of young people to engage with environmental issues. So the article finishes on a nice statement. It says, it is easy to be pessimistic in the face of daily reports of ecological loss. Some will say this is too mm -hmm. little too late. We say that this is, one, uh, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change the future for the better. Given the enormous environmental challenges the world faces, there is no alternative to education if we are to navigate our way to becoming a more sustainable and biodiverse country. And yeah, I'm in full agreement, obviously, because this is a, a great step forward. Absolutely. Uh, mm. It is, I mean, yeah, it is, it is late because uh, it should have come in, you know, when I was a child in the 90s, if not before that. But oh, yeah, definitely. But Tony Blair was too preoccupied with 
warmongering in Iraq. Uh, although I'm very <laughs> sure that they definitely, without question, found um, weapons of mass destruction. So it was completely justified and there haven't been any ramifications. Anyway. Of, of course not. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, so yeah, Save, I, it I like Save it for your political podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't have one yet, so it has to come out here. Uh, (laughs) a lot of kids at primary school age are interested in the natural world from you know sort of the kids that i've spoken to in uh, in jobs that i've worked at and it you know if if they've got decent parents they will be interested in that stuff but that interest often peters out in secondary school it didn't in myself and i'm sure it didn't in in you guys but Mm. i i do get it because everyone's early teens are rough and there's a lot going on but not getting any time in nature and being denied those mental health benefits nature has to offer i'm sure isn't helping all of those stresses at that age just to wind Mm. down kids need this and we all need this so i see zero downsides absolutely um, and whilst I'm sad, I had to find my own way into the subject. I'm pleased it will soon be available for the next generation. And that's the end of the article, really. I think when they say um, that it is too late, uh, action taken too late and stuff like that, I, I think they're kind of selling their effort short there, to be honest, because one of the problems is that, and we're all guilty of this, we look at the problems as just being too huge. The, mm. uh, it's, it's things that, like, on our own, as individuals, we can't possibly even hope to tackle these things as an island but we're not an island and everything that we do if we just take little baby steps or infant steps bigger steps you know all all these steps that everyone's taken and this is certainly one big one with far hopefully far reaching uh, influence and impact that step has a knock-on effect and uh, you can't change the world like overnight and this is certainly a step towards trying to change it over the course of a generation uh, and that provides a lot of hope but I also want to say and this is I don't care how controversial this is you're actually forced in or at least when I was at school in the UK you could you, you were forced to take religious studies because you you did your options and RS fell into kind of the humanities group so you had religious studies uh, geography sociology so on and so forth and if you didn't pick religious studies then you had to do religious education as, as a different thing. There was no option about it. Now, I think there's some like importance in that, in, in learning what other cultures are like and, and encouraging a bit of tolerance. Yeah, but if I didn't, I didn't when I was forced, a kid. But I do, think that that, I do think that that is actually important to, to sort of learn. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy it I as a so. child at all, but I think it's actually important. I didn't appreciate it as, as a kid, yeah. but as I grew up, I appreciated that I have the ability to critically think and evaluate and and i'm able to to realize that just because i don't buy into something i i'm able to respect it and and also the stories just like the ancient greek stories and that there are some interesting stories um that that you you can enjoy but the the point i'm trying to make is is if kids are going to be forced to learn about religion i'm sorry you should be forced to learn about the natural world too i feel that the natural world is far more important yeah. Oh, definitely. Without and without the world, there isn't a place for any of these religions to be. <laughs> I um didn't actually end up doing any religious studies whatsoever in in school or high school. Like you were um, spoiled as a child. It was this is this seems to be the the thing in some schools in Australia. There's uh, the there it is. Well, I the Australian I, I, guard. That's my school experience was in Australia. <laughs> I can't help that. Um. But yeah, my high school didn't do that. But if you went to a private school, a lot of them were very religious ones. So my brother did 
a lot of religious studies and things like that, even though he's not religious like myself. But um, I ended up being able to do native species studies oh, as, cool. a, as a class, which I, I found the easiest class in the world because at that point I was utterly obsessed with everything Australian yeah. wildlife. Yeah, very so, cool. Uh, but that's the exact same thing. It's one of those inspiring people to um, to look at the, the species that are around them. The minimum it can do, I think, is just to grasp hold of that um, that wonder that kids quite often have about the natural world, and just continue it a little bit longer yeah. um, into the into their teens when when that yeah that interest sort of peters out a little bit, and they can well, take um, it forward into adults. I was going to say uh, promote them that careers in this kind of field, it's STEM science, so yeah. yeah. is there is a need for it. There is, and and you can work make a career from steward in the world you've yep, jogged my respect. memory on, on this one drew of a of a hatred you're saying that you you hated the fact that you didn't have this i can always remember I did hate it yeah in in whatever year it was in primary school or in, or in secondary school you know you'd have your your science textbook and there might be a page on dinosaurs or on fossils and that's all you got i would have loved to have done more on that aspect of science on paleontology or you know it's it's this i bet there are so many kids out there that have that one field that they absolutely adore whether it's engineering or like planetary like physics or something like that which just get touched on in like one or two lessons now it's not the teacher's fault because they have to teach through the curriculum so they they don't really get a say in what they get to teach they've got a certain amount they've got to fit in but any extra things like this are a definite plus because it means that those areas are then broadened out and, and those kids get a chance to, well, to shine and, and to be able to drive their passion further, which is only a good thing. We'll, we'll see in a, a generation's time or a decade's time or so when uh, you yeah. end up getting absolutely flooded with <laughs> students now wanting to take on your course, Gareth. Well, you know what? I can't wait until I can get my child to uh, to take what are they calling it? Just a nature GSE, a GCSE. Natural history. Things. Natural history. Okay. Well, there you go. I will note that one in the diary for years to come. Yeah. And they'll come um, after our, pop, our podcast for copyright. Oh, we're of course they will. Natural history. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely that. Right. Well, let's move on from the news, which has been good news, which yes. so rarely happens on this show. Um, let's move on from that into a really sad story in uh, our creature feature. So You're we've gone up. And now we're going to bring you right back down. Oh. It's the Creature Feature. Right, well, we're into this week's Creature Feature. Um, and this week I get the fun of making you all feel sad again, because this is another tale of not so far off extinction. Um, this is an animal that humans saw, humans interacted with, unfortunately, too much. And humans made go extinct. So just like some of our previous ones, we've had I had the thylacine, um, Drew had the um, the passenger pigeon, and adding to this sad list of well, yeah, very very sad extinct species is the great auk, which was a truly wonderful bird and is the original penguin, which I'll get onto in a second. So the great auk, known as Pinguinus imp- uh, impunus was a very large member of the orc family. Now, we're not talking... They don't need their legs. We're we're not talking about those kind of orcs. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's it's, it's in there. It's stiff to me. 
<laughs> this is a different kind of orc mischief um, because these orcs are ones that are, well, very much around us today. If you live anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere um, on the Atlantic, these are birds that you may very well have seen. Um, you may have seen an orc and not known that you're looking at one. So things like guillemots, razorbills, puffins, um, they are all in that same family. Uh, and one of these extra members of this family was the great orc. Now, the great orc is unique amongst all of them in that it couldn't fly. Um, it was by far larger than all of the, uh, the other birds. It was up to 75 to 85 centimeters uh, tall. So you're looking around the sort of height of a quite a large bird. Its wings itself were actually only 15 centimeters long. So they're quite small, quite dinky and utterly useless for flight. So this is a bird that does not flight that does not fly. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bird that does not fly. It used its wings well in the same way that penguins use their wings. Another connection with penguins, which we'll get onto in a second. Um, uh, whilst it sort of flew through the water. So what does it look like? Well, luckily, we actually have a bird that looks identical uh, in many, many ways to uh, the great orc. And it's actually its closest living relative. And that's the razor bill which is a fantastic looking bird. They live on cliffs, um, the razorbill that is, uh, and they hunt small fish out at sea. Uh, but the great orc was basically a much scaled up version of this with a large black beak um, that was heavy and hooked at the end. Uh, it has grooves in, it, in its surface as well, just like the, uh, the razorbill does. So during summer, the great orc's plumage actually showed a white patch over uh, each eye. And uh, during the winter, it lost those patches uh, and ended up developing a white band sort of stretching between the eyes. So the plumage of the bird actually changed quite a bit throughout the year. So apart from that, this bird essentially looks like a large penguin. And in fact, this is where the word penguin seems to come from, because around the 1570s, um, this term was applied to the great orc by sailors uh, that would have been going around Newfoundland and seeing these birds quite often, and we'll get on to how often they were seeing these birds. But essentially when they, uh, the birds eventually became extinct and sailors started going further south. Uh, and in fact, um, in the Magellan Strait in 1578 um, and through until 1580, it's thought that uh, people started to see penguins, uh, Magellanic penguins or Humboldt penguins, some of the species that are down in and around that part of South America. As, as people entered into the Southern Hemisphere, um, they started to see these birds around in the waters. And of course, they, well, people being people, uh, they mistook them for essentially the same bird as the great orc. Now it's thought that the word penguin comes from the Welsh pen, meaning head or top of, and uh, Gwyn, which is the Welsh word for white, so white head. I don't know if this is a good time to interject, but may I interject something about what you were saying about how they thought the orcs and the penguins were pretty much the same thing there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the whalers that were doing these runs in and out of the southern and northern hemispheres, as, as you've just said, they thought that the northern orcs and the southern penguins were kind of part of the same family, mm. part of the same group, and they called all of them indiscriminately woggins ah that's what that so term that's is. Where... penguins and so so if you go back through like log books uh they'll tell you like oh we're in such and such a place uh and we caught a handful of woggins they, they <laughs> like caught that. them up and they 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 cooked them penguins yeah right 
but then you find the log as the logbook journeys into the northern hemisphere, or vice versa, you find that they're still talking about woggins in these That's in these new woggins. locales, and that they're still catching them and cooking them. <laughs> and it's 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 now the orcs, but they they call they called them woggins indiscriminately. And there's a there's about three different ways you can spell woggins, but the one oh, yeah. that I found the most common in in my brief kind of looking into this was W O double G I N S. Yeah, that's what woggins are. Woggins are hmm. penguins and orcs. Basically, because people can't be bothered to distinguish <laughs> between two different birds. So yeah, um, it's also where we get the word penguin. And then with the extinction of the great orc later on, the only black and white birds that you have are what we now call penguins. So um, that's where the bird's name comes from. So the original penguin technically is the great orc, even though it's not a penguin. Um, But it was thought, a lot of people have said, well, it can't be a penguin because penguins don't have white on the top of their heads. But it's thought it's just basically people seeing the white patches on great orcs which were closer to their beak uh, and then that being the uh, the inspiration for penguin but there are so many different versions of the name for great orcs they were known as spearbills by the uh, the vikings or the norse um they were called all sorts of different things in fact i've got some of those other names written down in historical accounts of them which we'll get onto in a bit but essentially you would have seen these birds on rocky out, uh, outcrops, very low outcrops. In fact, they actually favoured really quite low, small mounds out in the sea, which, as you'll see, is going to be their undoing. Remote islands with easy access for these birds because they were very clumsy on land. They could not move very well, where there would have been plentiful food as well. Uh, so essentially, you would have found them right across the North Atlantic, everywhere from the coastlines of Spain, Britain, right the way up to Greenland, Canada, uh, the Faroe Islands, Norway Island, uh, right the way across to um, Canada uh, and North America. In fact, they were common across this huge area of open sea. Now, you'd have only probably seen them on rocky outcrops during their breeding season. The rest of the time, they would have been out at sea looking for food, doing what seabirds do, diving down, in large groups looking for um, all sorts of different fish. Some of the ones that they were thought to have eaten, in fact, there has been some sort of uh, archaeological evidence of some of these uh, bits and pieces that they've eaten, would have uh, been things like Atlantic maidenhead, uh, capelin, which is uh, quite a small fish, so they'd have had to have eaten quite a few of those, crustaceans, uh, and it's even thought that some of the, um, the youngsters would have actually tried to eat algae and a bit of plankton every now and again, which... Uh, is quite interesting, but it's thought that they'll say they fed in cooperative uh, flocks. Just imagine a massive colony of seabirds just descending on an area, catching uh, all of these large shoals of fish uh, and swimming underwater quite well to be able to um, catch up to some of those fish, which are quite speedy as well. So when it comes to these birds, reproduction is the biggest thing in their in their year. Uh, And these colonies that they bred on are very much like the sort of colonies of seabirds that we have today. So if you go to any of these sort of coastal seabird colonies, there are just thousands of birds in one place. They'll find a a safe place to uh, to nest. In in terms of things like guillemots, puffins, gannets, all of these sort of seabirds that you, you might be familiar with if you've been to any of these coastal breeding sites, they all can obviously fly and they can sit up on cliffs 
things like gannets will go out to sea stacks out in the sea where there is no chance of any predator coming out to get to them, but they can fly out there, obviously. The biggest problem that the great orc has is it's very clumsy on land. So they had to find really low, shallow sort of islands. Would you say that the orc was a little bit awkward, awkward. on land? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've heard these really bad puns and I refuse to put them in. So, <laughs> one of the best places for the Great Orc was actually the Grand Banks off Newfoundland, which is a notoriously shallow area of sea. In fact, it's an area very close to where the Titanic went down, which is actually in quite deep water. Did they bring it down? Yeah, it was all Great Orcs, wasn't it? Oh, That's the spear bill. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, they'd been extinct for a quite a while before this point oh, but uh <laughs> so the colonies themselves would have been extremely crowded and dense and this seems to be a key aspect with these birds as well they like it densely packed they like having lots of neighbors around them it's it makes them feel safe and at home and able to breed and the estimates uh stating that the nesting grounds would have would have had so many orcs it would have been one bird per every square meter uh, of land. So that's quite a lot of, uh, of orcs in one very small space. Uh, and these colonies were very, very social. They included other species as well of, uh, of the orc family that would have just basically turned up on these islands as well, because they are small islands out at sea. So you'd have ended up seeing guillemots, puffins, um, all sorts of landing there as well. Um, but the great orcs were the main ones that uh, were sort of taking over the place because of their size. So if you're a little puffin, and all of a sudden, this great orc just kicks you out of the way. There's not really much you're going to be able to do about it. But they nested in extremely dense social colonies is, is their main thing that kept them feeling safe. However, they only laid one egg per clutch. And that was it. And like all other members of the, uh, the orc family, they actually have a very pointed egg at one end and very rounded at the other. And this is for a very, very key thing they laid these eggs on bare rock they didn't make nests they didn't make piles of guano like penguins uh, do in some areas to keep their eggs in one place these eggs were literally laid on the rock and that's it and there's a good chance if you laid your egg on a rock it might roll off the edge of the rock into the sea and that's goodbye chick for that year the reason why they have such a pointed end is they actually roll around in a circle if you knock them so they're not going to go rolling off the edge they're just going to spin a little bit where they are uh, it really does work. If you were to look at a orc egg compared to, say, a chicken egg, there is quite a noticeable difference in the shape. And it's a really good evolutionary feature that these guys had. And their smaller cousins do as well. So um, you'd have ended up with these eggs being laid uh, on a bare rock. And they, they came in a variety of different colors, sort of white right the way through to sort of mottled brown coloring uh, on them as well. Uh, both parents participated in the incubation of the egg. Uh, and this would have been for around six weeks. Um, before the young would event eventually hatch. The pair themselves are actually take turns, like say, incubating the egg in an upright position, which would have meant you'd have had these birds sitting almost like bolt upright. They're quite tall birds, so it would have been quite an odd thing to look at. Whereas if you look at something like uh, a penguin colony, most of them will lie sort of down on the eggs. The only other ones that really seem to do this sort of way of incubating uh, are emperor penguins, in fact, and that's purely to keep the egg up off the ice because they breed out on the ice. I thought you meant um, the egg so, was upright. <laughs> no, the birds. Okay. Um, Makes a bit but, more sense. Yeah. 
Or is it, <laughs> so no, the, uh, you know, you'd, go, you'd end up in the, you know, go to hospital, wouldn't you? Go, yeah, no, I just, I fell. <laughs> I fell, I fell on it. Yeah, went back in. Yeah, it went. Yeah. <laughs> Yet again, not not something I think they were doing, but no. um, so the the young when they hatched, they left the nest after about two to three weeks. Um, although the the parents continued to care for the uh, the young, um, it's thought the young had sort of a grayish coloring to them with a white underbelly, so they didn't have the same sort of markings that the adults would. Uh, and they actually took turns feeding the chick. And according to one account that they, they have from one of these sailors that turned uh, up on one of these islands, uh, the birds were covered in a gray down uh, and took only two to three weeks to mature enough to abandon the nest and land in the water, typically around the middle of July. Uh, the parents would care for their young uh, after, the, after they'd fledged and adults were even seen swimming with the young perched on their backs. So, you know, these were very maternal uh, yeah, birds. Yeah. They looked after their young, just like a lot of birds do. So, yeah, all was well for the great orc in this rosy, <laughs> rose-tinted world that I'm painting here. Uh, and great orcs matured sexually uh, when they were around four to seven years of age. So they spent most of that time out at sea catching fish. And then eventually they'd have come back to the same areas uh, that they sort of hatched to, well, make more little baby orcs. However, we have to get to humans. They are the elephant in the room, unfortunately. Um, and in fact, great orcs have actually been on the menu for a very, very long time. Uh, they have actually been a food source for Neanderthals. Uh, and more than 100,000 years ago, there is evidence of well-cleaned bones uh, found in campfires um, in Europe where mm. great orcs had been killed and eaten. Uh, and you, you can't blame people for eating them. These were an easy food source. They're not exactly hard to catch. They can't fly. They're rather large. They presumably have quite decent meat on them as well by some of the accounts. Um, and in fact, the Native Americans thought the same as well. They valued the great orc as a food source during the winter uh, and as an important cultural symbol as well. Uh, and images of great hawks have been found on bone necklaces. Uh, and in fact, a person was found, or a, a body of a person was found in Newfoundland uh, that dates back to around 2000 BC. Uh, and he was found surrounded by more than 200 great orc beaks that were believed to be part of a suit made from their skins with the heads left attached for decoration. Um, I had a quick question, backtracking just a little bit. You say mm -hmm. Native Americans ate them during the winter? Yes. Were they not out to sea at winter? The orcs, that is, not the Native Americans. Uh, presumably, <laughs> we're talking 2,000 years ago, there were more of them probably present closer to the coast of North America at this point. Would have come ashore at some points, presumably. Okay. But, um, yeah, from the research I've got, it says that they were an important food source during the winter. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, unfortunately, we now reach the point of, well... Humans really doing their, their real damage. You know, we've had the Native Americans, uh, we've had Neanderthals eating them. However, it's when it starts to become a bit of a commercialized industry, that's when things start to really plummet off a cliff. So later European sailors um, used the Great Orcs as a navigational beacon, uh, as sort of a halfway stop. And, and I heard someone uh, on the documentary refer to it as the first proper American takeout. You'd have had sailors turning up uh, on these islands off the coast of Newfoundland on the Great Banks, where there were some really good islands for, uh, for these birds to, uh, to nest. 
stopping up, just basically pulling up on your boat, hopping off, literally walking up to these birds, clubbing them over the head, and then hopping, you know, throwing them on the fire or hopping back on your boat and continuing on the way, which still at this point wouldn't have taken too great a toll. It was taking a toll, but it wasn't doing anywhere near as much damage as it could have. Um, but it's still not great. Uh, so the species is thought at, at this point to have had a maximum population only in the millions. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's high, but it's still, it could suffer really quickly from a lot of different um, issues. Um, so it was hunted uh, on a significant scale for its food and even the eggs as well when people turned up on these islands. But it's only when um, we started to see people turning up on the islands and actually turning it in, in, into an industry where the birds themselves would be captured, they'd be thrown in a pot to basically be boiled uh, until the point where their feathers can be plucked. This is the original eider down. Now, eider ducks are obviously a, a live species. Eider ducks actually end up taking the place of the great orc in, in this uh, duck down industry. Um, that sort of kicks off at this point after the great orcs go extinct. So the eider ducks were probably laughing at this point, going, ha, they're eating those guys. Actually, we're I fine. believe they were going. Oh, they're eating them. They'll never do that to us. No. Oh. <laughs> oh, they're doing it. So, um, yeah, this was a real a horrible thing. And the bird carcasses themselves were either used as meat for sailors um, or they would have actually been boiled down for oil because as seabirds, they had a certain amount of oil in their, their meat as well. So, you know, they were using the uh, the carcasses, but it became an industrialised sort of killing spree on these islands. It was quite brutal. Yeah, really quite brutal. Some of the early images I've seen of things like this is they would have had uh, boats that are just a, a dinghy sunk into the water slightly so that the orcs would be scared out on uh, onto the uh, these boats and fall into them like a pit and then they're stuck they just pull the boat in and then slaughter the whole lot of them so uh, yeah the it basically shooting fish in a barrel uh, effectively um so early explorers and numerous ships attempting to find gold on baffin island which is another one of these islands up in and around the uh, the northern coast of Canada as well, uh, yeah. were not provisioned with enough food for the journey. And this seems to be, you know, a really key thing. A lot of these ships that were going over towards the new uh, the new world were not taking anywhere near enough food with them, enough to be able to prevent scurvy, which meat does because it's got vitamin C in it to an extent, and therefore use the great orcs as both a convenient food source and also bait for fishing. Um, and reportedly, some of the later vessels uh, anchored next to the colony as well and just put planks out, ran onto the land, herded hundreds of them onto the ships as well, not just into these boats, uh, and then slaughtered them. So we are talking an absolute bloodbath of these poor birds. And by the mid-16th century, now, the, uh, the nesting colonies along uh, the European side of the Atlantic were nearly completely eliminated by humans. And we had basically butchered them to such an extent that they were no longer anywhere uh, off our coasts. In 1553, the Great Orc received its first official protection. Uh, and, and in 1794, Great Britain banned the killing of the species for its feathers. Um, however, those violating uh, this law, uh, banning the hunting of the Great Orc for its feathers or its eggs, 
were uh, were actually publicly flogged. Although hunting was uh, was fine as long as you were doing it for fishing bait. So, kind of a pointless law, really. You know, if you're going to eat it, well, no, we'll flog you. But if you're going to chop it up and use it for bait, that's absolutely fine. We definitely don't have those sort of laws with a hundred loopholes <laughs> no. now. Nowadays. Of course not. No, of course we've, not. We've moved on. 300 years later, and we've still not even got anywhere close. So on the island of St Kilda in Scotland in July 1840, the last great orc was seen in Brit- uh, British waters. Uh, it was caught and killed. Three men from St Kilda caught a single gearfowl which is the um, St. Kilden word for it, which is mm-hmm. actually comes from the Norse word, meaning spearfowl or spearbird. So noticing uh, its little wings and large white spots on its head, uh, they tied it up and kept it alive for three days. Now, this is yet again showing human stupidity at this point, because until a large storm arose, believing that the bird was in fact a witch... <laughs> yeah. It's honestly hard to read this sentence and not laugh, but it is so, so hard to read because these people were so painfully stupid. <laughs> so they, they got this bird and they tied it up and kept it alive for three days. A large storm arose and they believed the bird was in fact a witch that was causing the storm. They then killed it by beating it to death with a stick. Yeah. It doesn't say whether the storm stopped or not, but that was the last British... Well- member of the great orc presumably uh, the storm did stop because they killed the witch that was starting well, the storm i mean clearly this witch that was a again I'm, bird. I'm glad we've changed i'm glad we've, we've moved on like this and we don't have people you know thinking that Killing five, 5g somehow you need to wear a, a tinfoil hat to stop the 5g waves from getting in and controlling your brain yeah so it starts to get even sadder by this point because the last colony of great orcs uh lived on what was known as Gearfuck, Alaska, um, the Great Orc Rock, uh, just off Iceland. This islet uh, was actually a volcanic rock surrounded by cliffs that made it um, completely inaccessible to humans. So this sounds like brilliant. They've got their last stronghold. Last, last little bastion. It's, yeah. it's absolutely impervious. But in 1830, the island submerged after a volcanic eruption. The actual island itself... Oh, even... Iceland, even nature and geology is trying to cuck them. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it's thought that the population was sort of halved at this point. There's um, a strong um, penguin bias in this planet. <laughs> it, it basically destroyed the, uh, the population's only safe space to breed within the North Atlantic at this point. And the remaining birds, it's thought to have been uh, somewhere around 50 pairs of birds, ended up living on uh, the nearby island of Elderley. Now, unfortunately, this is easily accessible on one side and was basically their undoing because they are now sitting there waiting for people to turn up to butcher them. By this point, there is actually a weird shift in the sort of interest in birds. You very much have this, the oldie worldy view, um, which to an extent I've kind of bought into when I I was a, a kid, and I still do to an extent, but thankfully nowhere near as much, of the collector. If you were in natural history, you were a collector. You had to have a collection of skeletons, a collection of stuffed butterflies, birds, all these different things. And I I had drawers of curiosities that I'd found when I was a kid. I had rabbit skeletons and insects that I'd found and pinned out 
but I'd never actively gone out and killed any of these animals myself. The Victorians were doing this on an industrial scale. It was their way of being able to comprehend the natural world, essentially cataloging it. And at this point, conservation, if you could even call it that, consisted of essentially, I need to go out and shoot me one of those so that I can prove that there is one because it's in my collection. The next naturalist down the road would say the exact same thing. Mm. And that's where we've ended up with these massive collections that are in museums all around the world of everything from uh, butterflies to buffaloes, you know, that have been shot by all these Victorian collectors. To give you an idea, there, there were even such things as butterfly guns, which were guns that were had bullets basically of a size that would shoot a butterfly out of the air so you could then pin it and, uh, and have it in your collection. This Pretty is the real undoing. It, 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 when we look back, we have, we have thankfully changed a lot in our ways of doing that. I would never consider going out and killing an animal to just have it in my collection. Unfortunately, there is still people who do that from a hunting sense, but that's a whole other thing we won't touch on. Yeah. This is but, unfortunately the undoing of the orc because it's at this point, people knew they were rare, but they had to prove that they were rare. So naturalists ended up paying people to go out to kill the birds, to have one in their collection to prove that they were rare. So this sort of weird publicity for these rare birds ended up being their undoing. I have a question, sorry. How does that prove that it's rare? It, this is a Victorian mindset on this. So <laughs> I'm not fully sure of the logic behind it, but it was that whole thing of to prove that it's in my collection, to prove that it is of interest that basically sort of a mania sort of of collecting these birds came around yeah, yeah not not necessarily i suppose to even prove that they were rare but okay you ended up with uh these last few birds on this island uh, which is accessible easily from the mainland uh where this last colony um it was initially discovered in 1835 nearly 50 birds were present uh, and museums basically wanting skins and eggs with the great orcs for preservation and display quickly began collecting these birds from the colony. The last pair was found incubating an egg on, on this uh, very sad day. In fact, it's a date that's actually coming up soon. It's the 3rd of June, the 3rd of June in 1844. On a request, uh, a contract, three men um, were sent there to basically collect specimens uh, for a naturalist. They went to the island, strangling adults, basically. <laughs> The last two birds were strangled to death. Uh, and unfortunately, in the process of collecting these last two birds, they actually stepped on the last egg. And within that brief sort of boot coming down, that was the end of this species. It was, you know, a really sad end to a really sad tale of these birds. Got the boot. <laughs> the boot, yeah. So great orc specialist, John Woley, who was part of this sort of craze of people, you know, wanting to know everything about this bird, which they had just, just managed to wipe out, interviewed the two men uh, who actually killed the last birds, Sidgird, who was the, uh, the man who did it. Uh, Sidgird uh, described the act as follows. I, I do believe he should be on a, a list of despicable humans that have helped to wipe out the last of a species and should forever be seen as, well, you know, or should almost be forgotten into history, or I don't know. I, I, I yeah, don't yeah. Know. Don't glorify the uh, yeah. You know the like how we glorify murderers and not the actual victims at all. Exactly. 
So his account was the rocks were covered with blackbirds, uh, referring to guillemot. And then there were the gerfungals, uh, which is another Icelandic word um, for the... Uh... Was art there as well? <laughs> no, they're the garfunkels. They're slightly different. Um, so the gerfunkels, the Icelandic word for the, the great orcs, they walked slowly uh, and crept up with his arms open. Uh, the bird that John, uh, the other uh, man who was there, got went onto the corner, uh, but mine was going for the edge of the cliff. It walked like a man but moved its feet quickly. It caught close to the edge, a precipice many fathoms deep. Its wings lay close uh, to its sides, not hanging out. I took him by the neck. He flapped his wings. He made no cry. I strangled him. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> there is no real way of describing this story in that it is sad. This is a bird that basically disappeared far too soon and unfortunately one of these ones that disappeared and then people thought they saw everywhere so just like people think they still see thylacines to this day uh, there were people for a long while that thought that they were seeing great orcs and after 1844 that's it that was the last bird there may have been one or two spotted but these birds like I say relied on being in large colonies to breed and without those uh, those large colonies, protected colonies as well, the numbers would have just slowly dwindled and we would have probably lost the species maybe 20, 30 years later. The irony of this is that these uh, are a bird that probably would do quite well in zoos if would have been at that point of being able to have them in zoos because there are many birds today that we have in collections that need that sort of large flock size that we can still sim uh, simulate quite well Flamingos are a good example of that. By having mirrors, you can essentially trick the flamingos into think they're in a much larger flock and keep them happy and get them more in a breeding mood. Mm. So there ends the tale of, or the very, very sad tale of the great orc with uh, one swift boot by two men. That was the last of their species gone in a horrific manner. So uh, now that I've brought us suitably down, uh, do you guys have anything to say? <laughs> Well, just that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I say that the Great Orc extinction is certainly in my top five of most horrific and sad, relatively recent extinctions. Mm. Oh, in fact, that is actually my third recent sad extinction story. Drew's done the passenger pigeon, but I've also done the dodo and the thylacine. So I'm, I'm really addicted to doing these really sad extinction stories. Mm. <laughs> so... Uh, Watch this space for Gareth's depressing extinction tales. I'm going to be doing a one relatively soon as well. Oh, good. Uh, we <laughs> continue to keep everyone Another island species. Rest. We love islands. Yep. But we hate what's on them. <laughs> Nothing bad ever happens on an island. <laughs> the best thing you can do with an island is introduce domestic cats. Yes. And let them run riot. And ferrets. And pigs. Of course. Get, and rats. get that triumvite of... of Ferrets, domestic cats, and pigs, and just let them go. Then you're on to a winner. <laughs> have a good island paradise. <laughs> yep. For those animals. But yes, yeah. there is the great orc. In fact, if you like the great orc and you like any of these recently extinct species, there was a TV series that was on possibly early 2000s that if you're in the UK and have all four, um, the Channel 4 streaming service or have a VPN or whatever, go and you know do it that way. It's called Extinct, 
which was a really great series. They did the Great Orc, they did the Thylacine, uh, the Mammoth, the Irish Elk, the Sabretooth Cat, and the Dodo as well. All really good documentaries that were on there. Uh, I think one or two of them are even on YouTube as well. But yeah, it's the same very depressing tale of these animals being hunted to extinction over and over again. It's a good way to depress yourself, really, if you go and watch all of those no, programs we, in one hit. Me and Drew did all that work building them up, and then you go and skittle them with that. <laughs> right, well, let's move on from that into something slightly different. These birds were obviously black and white, like a penguin, and unfortunately the last one was probably black and white and red all over after those two sailors found it. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> There we go. I got my dad joke in there. So we'll move on to our <laughs> word of the week, which is very much black and white. Yeah, hosted by Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's word of the week. Right. Well, we're into this week's word of the week. Bad jokes aside, this one is very black and white. So, uh, Aaron, what have you got for us? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter, of course. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Apparently, it did. No. Yeah. So today's word, this week's word of the week, is uh, is melanosome. And melanosomes, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive. It's not going to be such an in a nutshell kind of thing. Melanosomes are made in the melanocytes of mammalian skin tissue in choroidal melanocytes and in the retinal pigment epithelial cells of the eyes. Uh, they are organelles, a specialized structure carrying out various tasks within the cells. And the word organelle itself means little organ, and that's probably the easiest way to think of them. They're, they're like little tiny organs for the cells. Now they're roughly about 500 nanometers in diameter, and can be either rounded in shape or like a cylindrical shape and are easily distinguishable under bright field microscopy thanks to their dark pigment. The role of the melanosomes is to produce and store melanin that we will all have heard of and been familiar with, especially if you like to go on holiday to hot places. Uh, it's the most common light absorbent biological pigment in the animal kingdom and has a plethora of special attributes such as a high refractive index, semiconducting capabilities, material stiffness and a high fossilization potential which we'll come back to uh, with some importance in a bit. Melanosomes can provide tissues such as skin with photoprotection, important to us, give hair to it, its color or aid in environmental adaptation by allowing for rapid color change, the latter uh, due to the reversible aggregation of melanosomes in lower vertebrates. So the melanosomes depend upon certain enzymes, namely tyrosinase, that create the polymers of melanin within the cell. Uh, dysfunction or absence of these enzymes is what causes albinism. Um, and albinism, you would have heard of because it results in white hair, fe white feathers, white scales, um, and very, very, very pale skin. And usually, but not always, accompanied, of course, by the characteristic pinkish red eye coloration. A subject displaying these, tra these traits is known as an albino. Now, the overabundance of these enzymes 
on the other hand, causes melanism, which is very much the opposite of albinism. Uh, whilst oftentimes albinism results in survival disadvantages, in many cases, the opposite is true of melanism, with the darker pigmentation providing specific camouflage advantages to nocturnal species. In fact, just jump off on that point, all leopards south of the Thailand-Malaysia border, for example, are melanistic or dark. Uh, though on that note, it is important to remember that they are not black. Uh, they are very, very dark brown. If you see a melanistic leopard or a melanistic jaguar as well, both are sometimes known as panthers. If you see them in with indirect sunlight, you'll still be able to see the spots because the spots are true black and the coat is just, just a very dark brown. Um, I was going to so say, we, it's, uh, sorry, it, gives, it gives weight to um, once you come black, you don't go back. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Melanism is better, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> In a second. Uh, uh, right. Um... <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> uh, so we can see the work of the of, of melanosomes in the animal kingdom in front of our very eyes, not just like in, in melanistic big cats, but species of fish, crustaceans, reptiles and amphibians can all enjoy the benefits of highly mobile melanosomes in their cells. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Come back to us, Aaron. You can do it. You can do it. That's even that funny. It's all right, I'm back. So this uh, benefit of the highly mobile melanosomes in their cells that I just mentioned, it allows for quick colour changes that you often see and can be used as behavioural signalling or, again, photo protection. Very recently, uh, melanosomes have been discovered in spiders, but kind of on a similar kind of thread of thought that we'll kind of debunk right away here. Uh, the rapid colour changes of octopi and squids aren't the work of melanosomes. They're actually the work of another system that is equally fascinating and will definitely be a future word of the week, and that is chromatophores. Anyway, when reimagining, this, this is a bit that gets interesting for, for us with our, our kind of dinosaur bias. Uh, when reimagining extinct dinosaurs, modern paleo art often struggles, I think, uh, and I'm not sure how you two feel, uh, but it often struggles to decide for itself whether to follow the traditionally earthy colorations of modern reptiles in themes such as those seen in the uh, Jurassic franchise, or head down the often more colorful option of using bird plumage, reflecting, of course, our relatively fresh understanding of birds as dinosaurs. So a developing field of paleo color seeks to find the truths to the question of what colors were the dinosaurs? And they look to fossilized evidence of mel melanosomes to do just that. Uh, typically, if you were lucky enough to happen upon a dinosaur fossil and you were exceptionally lucky to find that uh, feathers had fossilized or even skin, you'd be looking at something in the brown shade range, maybe potentially black too. But this does not accurately reflect necessarily that, that creature's coloration in, in life. Uh, melanosomes are where we can find that information. This is important for more than just painting an accurate image of extinct species. Colour can conjure up a deeper understanding of behaviour, life habits, visual behaviour 
behavioral cues and reproductive displays. As so much data can be unlocked about an animal just by simply knowing what color it was. And we can see that in animals that we have around today. That's how we kind of can infer these things from that. The discovery of melanosomes in, uh, in fossils came when Jacob Winter, I hope I've pronounced your name proper, uh, properly, uh, who is now a lecturer at Bristol University, realized that ink sacs in fossilized squid uh, were the same as those in modern day squid. Uh, thus, the ink of this ancient squid ancestor must therefore also have been melanin, the same pigment found in dinosaurs, among other animals, of course, including us. So inspired by this, he studied the, fo the fossil of a 55 million year old bird from Denmark. And to his excitement, he found his path to colouring dinosaurs right there under his microscope. This can give us a clear picture of grey shades and brick-like rusty reds and black. And where no pigment is, evidence, is evident, potentially white. Uh, the reason why I say potentially white is because not all pigments fossilise the same uh, efficiency as, as uh, melanosomes did. Since this discovery, uh, one Maria McNamara of the University of Cork has published a paper of her own in which she details the finding of fossilized evidence of carotenoids. These are the pigments that allow for brighter reds, oranges, and yellows, filling in yet more blanks in the coloration of extinct dinosaur species. Uh, don't get too carried away or excited, though. We know that there are several challenges facing paleo colour, namely that some pigments may not survive the fossilization process. I've kind of already mentioned that. So we may only be getting part of the picture. And in getting part of that picture, we have to be careful not to extrapolate an entire image of an animal, especially if that image and uh, it is coming from just one fossilised feather. Still, even today, we don't fully understand melanin itself, even in extant species. So again, it's difficult to, to draw any like concrete conclusions. Nonetheless, that is a brief overview of what our very exciting word of the week means and what role it plays in science and the world around us. So if you guys have anything to add to that, particularly the dinosaur bit, it's not just dinosaurs either. Pterosaurs have been found with, with these and they started to be able to infer coloration from that so yeah if you guys have anything to add to that please feel free i think i've said my piece well <laughs> i think so the bit when it comes to melanosomes they've been able to work out the uh, the shapes of them that telling you the, the different colors from that you've now got That's a correct. rough idea of what microraptor would have been colored like um, yeah we he's the one that we think might have been Black like in a, it, yeah, like yeah. a raven, isn't it? Like iridescent, black, yeah, iridescent, black, iridescent, yeah. like a raven, but with a little bit of red on the head. Okay, uh, iridescence again. When I was researching this, one thing that they said about like the challenges that are facing paleo color is that if you do try and recreate a whole image based off of just one feather, the problem might be what if that dinosaur has anywhere near the color range and the plumage of our modern dinosaur, the peacock. Yep, and there's nothing out there that says that that couldn't be the case. Exactly. And there's also the, um, the thought that you could have come across them in their breeding plumage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they, could, yeah they might have died in the dull season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, that'd be but... awful, wouldn't it? If you, looked, oh, if, you, if you were just these fabulous colours in the summer, 
and then in winter you went all dull and you died and then you became fossilized you go oh, i look so much better than this guys <laughs> this is, is how i'll be remembered yeah <laughs> there is also some uh for Cetarchosaurus as well um the small ceratopsid dinosaur Mm. Oh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a lime green brown color. Is that yes. skin? Is that skin? I think it's in the skin impression. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Now, interestingly enough, from what I read, I didn't include this in in the write up because it goes a little bit beyond just melanosomes. I thought it was worth noting that other pigments are starting to be other pigments are invested and found. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but but this was particularly about melanosomes. Maybe we'll come back to carotenoids and and all that. But. Yeah. But the the brighter colours uh, seem to be in the herbivores. Um, I mean, yes and no, I suppose. In so those yellow, the brighter reds, oranges, and yellows uh, of those carotenoids, they're the ones specifically that they seem to find more in the in the herbivores than it, than in the uh, the others. Mm. But then there are other pigments that produce other colours. So you, uh, and also they did name. I'm pretty sure they named at least one theropod that. Uh, that was brightly coloured. Uh, well, the one that I was going to bring up is sort of fox coloured, um, as they've they've described it. It's Cyanosauropteryx, mm. uh, small theropod dinosaur, uh, not much bigger than well than a fox really. They know that it the colouring that they were finding on it would have been sort of a, a fox coloured orange, that nice ginger colour. But they also think they found the sort of white colouring to where the tail region would have been as well. So oh, yeah. Imagine it with like a white striped tail going down. A paleo color is one of the reasons why I absolutely love that Beast of the Mesozoic by Creative Beast Studios. The, their in reinterpretations of extinct species using modern day okay. bird plumages. It's just, they're beautiful. Yeah. Well, it stands to reason, you know, dinosaurs yeah. just like modern day birds were living. We're living, breathing creatures, and they would have had the same sort of issues. So, yeah, exactly why not? Yeah, very cool. Right, well, let's move on from what's black and white to um, what's red all over, and that'll be our emails. I <laughs> oh did it. God. I found the link. <laughs> let's, let's go into our emails. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, well, we're into our mailbag. And no, no Aaron rolling around on the floor with laughter after that joke. I, a little bit hurt, Aaron, you know. I'm all laughed out. Well. You've got, you've got to go do... down to Aaron's level. You've got to... <laughs> down? <laughs> well, what we will do is we'll answer a question uh, that has actually come in from my mum because she was in the garden the other day and all of a sudden she saw a blackbird Nothing out of the ordinary there. Um, they are. Did she start wonderful. singing the Wurzels song about yes. beating it out started, of a tree? <laughs> yeah, she started singing a, the Wurzels song about beating it out of the tree. No, um, this particular blackbird uh, she sent me a photo of um, has, well, it's got white patches all over it. And blackbirds, as their name suggests, are black in color, apart oh. from their sort of uh, yellow, yellow beak and, and legs. And the females, obviously, being a lighter. Uh, color and the chicks being uh, brown but none of them are white um so what's happening uh, in this picture and we we will put this picture up as well it's i'm gonna say it's standard my mum's photography it's blurry the <laughs> second image out of the two that i can't has got the top of her thumb 
Well, does it exist then? Because that's it... the criteria by which we debunk any big cat in Britain photo. I don't know, actually. I imagine if my mum was to take take a photo of a big cat, it would probably come out completely and utterly unlegible as to whatever it was supposed to be. Or it would go the exact opposite way. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, this, this image, like I say, it's got well white patches all over it. So what's happening here? Um, so this is uh, what's called, and it ties very nicely in uh, with what Aaron's just been talking about, uh, the colouring that makes up birds' feathers. So you may have seen uh, an albino animal before, uh, and that is an all-white animal. It's completely lacking in melanin in its, uh, in its cells, uh, and that ends up with uh, the animal having no melanin, even in its skin and in its eyes, to the point where they are pink or red. You may have seen an albino rabbit. They're quite common as pets uh, or albino rats or mice. Or um, in some less than uh, less than agreeable zoological collections, you might go. find white wallabies. Yes, even mm. white tigers as well. Um, oh God, white tigers. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hurt Aaron in a deep place there. <laughs> so... This is not an albino because, well, evidently it's got black on it. Um, it's still got, uh, it's got white on it and it still has the coloring to its eyes and to its beak and to its skin. This is what's known as a leucistic bird. And that means it basically has patches of lack of pigment. You end up with this sort of hodgepodge of the, uh, the, the pigment disappearing. Um, and blackbirds seem to be one of these birds that people have noticed an awful lot on. There doesn't seem to be a specific reason for this other than people thinking, well, they're black, so the white colouring does definitely stand out um, on them. So there seems to be a, a bit of a thought on that. And in doing some research, I was able to come across a study on leucistic bird numbers uh, throughout the, the UK. Uh, and in a month, um, this survey that was done, uh, this is in 2012, uh, clocked nearly 700 sightings. This is by the, the British Trust of Ornithology, the BTO, so a pretty good source. Uh, in less than a month, uh, nearly 700 sightings, uh, encompassing more than 35 different species, three quarters of the records that have been leucistic birds. Uh, and of these, nearly half of them were blackbirds. So they are a very commonly seen bird anyway, combined with the fact that the white colouring stands out quite well. You're obviously going to end up with them being the majority of what people have seen. And you end up with, uh, like I say, these, these patches. They don't seem to be in a specific order because uh, you can see ones that have got bits on their head, bits on their wings. Sometimes it's just one or two feathers, uh, the rest of the bird being completely black and sort of normal coloured. And it's not just blackbirds that this happens to. Um, you can get starlings uh, that have got the, uh, the colours on it. And by far the most amazing bird with a leucistic uh, variation that I've ever seen was actually a starling that was split down the centre. So one half of it was normal coloured, one wow. half was leucistic. That was in Australia. Um, I genuinely wish I would have been able to get a photo uh, of that because I can still remember it landing and seeing it and being very amazed at the, at the sight of this thing. Have you guys ever seen any leucistic birds? Um, some of the other ones that you... I you think I've seen a raven. Like, yeah. Leucistic Crows, raven. jackdaws. Um, these seem to be the next most commonly spotted. Same with, uh, the same with blackbirds. They are dark in colour, so the white stands out quite a bit uh, on them. Drew, have you seen any? Uh, again, just a couple of blackbirds, I think. Yeah. There are even accounts of blue tits as well, and great tits, 
um, with areas being uh, different colored on them. And you can end up with what's known uh, as a sort of chocolate brown version. So if you imagined if you, uh, one of the, the pictures that comes up on this particular site that I've, I've got from the BTO uh, is a starling that is uh, sort of referred to as a chocolate brown starling. If you imagine sort of washing out the colors of a starling, if you bleached a starling to the point where it's, its colors faded right down to just sort of whitish brown colors, that's what you end up with. Um, this can also occur as well. Uh, and it's essentially, yeah, it's this, just these individuals have loss of pigment in certain areas and you end up with these sort of splodged colors. But uh, that is essentially what it is, is a, uh, a bird missing bits of uh, pigment. In fact, if you listeners have managed to spot a bird like this, send us some, some of your pictures. We'll put, a, we'll put these pictures up on our Facebook and on our Twitter. And um, yeah, send us, send us your pictures of your leucistic birds that have come to your garden. Yeah, right, well, yeah. like I say, if you too, dear listener, want to send us pictures of your leucistic birds, you can do that by sending it to our email address, which is thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook, and our handle is at nhcovered. And of course, we are now also on TikTok as well, doing lots of videos and the like. Uh, and remember, you can like us, subscribe, ring a bell, poke a something, do, do, do whatever on whatever platform we're on throw a virtual sheep you used to do that and be, be able to do that on facebook why can't you do that anymore you can still poke like i got i got randomly poked by one of my mates the other day very wow. rude mm. what about sheep though i want to be able to throw sheep at people i didn't know that you could do that uh, they've all been taken by white-tailed eagles ah it's always the way those facebook white-tailed eagles yeah well anyway yeah like us share us do whatever all those different things on whatever social media service you're listening to us on and uh, remember you can um, like and subscribe on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on but that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-hosts a big thank you drew uh, you're very welcome professor uh, it's been awesome oh not been awkward then no good <laughs> I thought you were going to make jokes about me having to teach a natural history GCSE, but... Uh, oh, I already no. did that. <laughs> and a big thank you, uh, Aaron. To paraphrase Samwise Ganji, this has been like one of those great stories where you, you, you don't really know that you want to find out what the end is, because how can it ever be good? Well. <laughs> and here we are at the end, and was it good? Indeed. Was it good, Aaron? <laughs> I think mostly. I think mostly. Oh, good. Uh, well, there you I mean, go. The creature feature was heartbreaking. There's a review for you. Mostly good. <laughs> yeah. We are and number that, 163. And that would, that would be fair. <laughs> that would be fair. <laughs> <coughs> and as Aaron goes off to die in the corner, we say a big thank you <laughs> to you as well at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hopefully Aaron's here with us next week and not dead from consumption. Jesus. Yeah, he's something of a professor himself. <laughs>